Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 64 of The Leadership Window. Glad you're along. Uh, Today's episode was scheduled a couple of weeks ago, and we just had to delay it for this reason, that reason. Stuff happens, and so I'm so glad we were able to get right back on it. This is... uh, I'm always excited to have a conversation with this guy. (laughs) He is Monroe Free. He is a fantastic friend, and we've just become close friends, actually, over the time that we've been working together with a number of organizations here in South Carolina. Monroe Free is the president and CEO for Habitat for Humanity of Greenville County in Greenville, South Carolina. And I I estimate them to be really one of the leading habitats in the country. I think the work that they're doing is ahead of the game. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do some work with them on strategic planning and some board engagement and some executive coaching with a number of their team members and leadership development. And then uh, Monroe and I are also involved in an organization, our state nonprofit association here in South Carolina which is Together SC. Monroe is currently their board chair. And I've done some uh, uh, some extensive work actually with Together SC as well. And uh, we've just become good friends and just uh, kindred spirits and, and um, just found a lot in common. And what I really love, Monroe, is that our differences as well are just as rich because, yeah. because I think we learn from each other and... Um, it's just been it's just been been fantastic. So now, the work we do is kind of on the side, and we can't wait for the work to be over so that we can have some good deep conversations and have some fun and, and yeah, enjoy a maybe an maybe an adult beverage or two here and there, and uh, get done with this podcast episode and go enjoy some Mexican food, and it's just all good. It's all Monroe. Thanks for coming back. I've really been looking forward to it. Obviously, always enjoy being with you, man. Well, thank you. Patrick, and uh, uh, right back at you, I, I really enjoy our friendship. I really, really enjoy and benefit from our conversation, whether they're about work or whether they're about solving the problems of the world or whether they're just personal. Uh, I really do enjoy that, and I, I'm excited to be able to get here and do this podcast. You know, I, I went and got a haircut today just for this podcast. That's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah. That's good. Well, it looks real good. And, uh, we'll tell our listeners that it just looks maybe the best I've ever seen it. Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe one of these days we'll do a podcast on, uh, on baseball. I don't know. Um, there you go. Maybe some leadership lessons from, from, you the know, my, my dad was a Baptist preacher and he had a sermon called the baseball sermon. Oh. So maybe we can do a nonprofit podcast called the baseball podcast. Ooh, I'm all in. You know that. I'm all in for that. Well, Monroe, you were on the show, oh, a number of months ago, and and we talked about a lot of things around leadership. And and, um, for our listeners, I invited Monroe back for a a specific conversation because part of the work that they have done at Habitat Greenville is some work around systems change. So 
the premise of this episode is that when, in my experience, when many organizations talk about their desire to do systems change work, there's a, people just kind of glaze over. It's like, okay, that sounded right. You know, systems change. Yeah, I've heard that term. I know it's like what we're supposed to be doing and let's get at the systemic level, right? Root cause, right? Like that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to do that. It's kind of like, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, yes, yes. we want to do that. We're now, all what, for it. Yeah, now what is it? We're all for it. <laughs> systems change is kind of like that. It's just one of those terms that I think conceptually people intuitively understand what it is, but then when they try to define it, and define their work in it and what it actually means, it becomes difficult. And the simple thing Monroe for me is that what I found is that the biggest reason for that is not because it's so hard and complex, but because organizations simply have not done what yours did, which is pause and ask the question, what do we mean by that? And what is our work around that? So I wanted to share, I want to have you walk through your construct for systems change. And while we're at it, the other thing that I think you've done really well with your leadership team is articulate what you have found are really the values on the ground. Okay. Not the ethereal values that everybody puts on their website, transparency, honesty, integrity, all that, which is all great. But you, your team also did some work around, yeah, but what are we really, what are we really behaving like? And, and partly what are we behaving like that's kind of shown up as you say, and, and part of it is what do we know we should be behaving like? What are some of those aspirations? So I wanted to have a conversation about both the systems change construct that you've articulated and the values. And I think your example will be enlightening and informative and inspiring for a lot of our listeners. You know, Patrick, I want to follow up on what you said. I think it's, the whole idea of systems change is so difficult because we don't have movies for it. (laughs) We we can't look back and say, well, this is Mm. how we did it, or this is how we've seen other people do it because the the people who have done systems work very well have been the large national multinational organizations um, that, um, and it's just been in the last few years that local organizations have begun to get into that game and to say, we need to affect systems in our community. Uh, we need to affect systems that impact what we do. So there's not a lot of movies for this. And that's what makes that very, very difficult, right? We, we know how to help individuals because there's lots of movies about how to help individuals, right? Or help mm. families or to help addiction. There's movies for that. But when we get to the systems change uh, piece, not many movies for that. Interesting. And as you were saying that, two things came to mind. And um, I'd love your take on this. As you're talking, I'm thinking that when you, when you talked about the national movements versus the local movements, I think a lot of times at the local level, oddly enough, we feel like the systems are too big for us to change because they're national or they're global. That's right. Bigger organizations are going to have to fix those. When in reality, it might be easier to fix local systems than it is the the, the well, big ones. Or, uh, to, to, to quote uh, uh, some famous politician, all politics all, are local, all right? All politics <laughs> are local. That's right. But the other thing um, that struck me on this is, and we've had this conversation offline, those that are making systems change are not doing it as 
an entity, a single brand entity or an organization. Those that are making systems change understand that they're part of a bigger ecosystem. Absolutely. And so it's much more difficult to attribute who's, who's making the change here. Because, right. because it's a, it's collective work that is moving ever so slowly because it is always slow, but ever so slowly moving the needle. And it's hard to kind of point your finger at and like maybe the, maybe yeah. there's bits of the movie out there. <laughs> and, and could I be so bold to say that the part of the reason that happens is because we are afraid that we're going to lose some of our brand if we go together with other organizations to create systems change. Only my opinion, and this is oh, for, I, for, for this and, and seven bucks, you can get a glass of whiskey, but you, 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 you can't have systems change without collaboration, without it becoming a part of a larger ecosystem. But when we do that, we risk sacrificing some of our brand perhaps, or we fear sacrificing some of our brand. I don't think there's any question about that Monroe. I agree 100%. And here's what I found too. You know, I, I often quote the Ronald Reagan plaque that he had on his desk, that there's no limit to what a man can do or achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Yep. And that's a great, that's a great thing. However, we need our brand value <laughs> because if we don't have it, then we can't, we can't continue to garner the support in the movie we, we leverage Absolutely. it. So it's a catch 22 sort of, we need the brand value, but we can't. That's right. And if you're talking to CEOs, I think there's a legitimate argument that a CEO has one fundamental role and that's to build the brand of the organization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to, to say, gosh, we're going to sacrifice some of that by becoming a part of a bigger collaborative is feels, feels very risky, feels very risky. It does feel risky. Yeah, it does. And I've also thought, and this is just a, a personal theory. I don't know. Um, I kind of feel like when an organization, if you're willing to sacrifice some of that attribution yes. and, and, and accolade, uh, it probably will still plenty of it will probably still come back to you because the people that know the people that are in it and the people that matter will know the role you played. Like that's right. And, and you know, I, I, of course there's a, there's a, a leadership principle. There's a spiritual principle, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh that, that when you give it, when you give away power, it comes back to you, mm. perhaps in another form, mm -hmm. but it comes back to you when you give it away. And, and certainly that's consistent with my experience, but man, the, 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 the overcoming the feelings of fear, the, the, of, of, of losing of risk, you know, um, well, that's hard to do. It, it is. It, it, and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm old at this point. I've been doing this a long time. It looks like I would have overcome that fear. Let me assure you, I have not. Oh, well, and it's in the little things too. It's in the it's, little things like, you know, whose logo goes on the, the communique about this summit that we're holding on early childhood that, yeah. that is a collective effort, but yes. it's this foundation that's sponsoring it, or it's this organization that's, you know, and, and yeah. there's, there's real conversations around how that happens. And sometimes to be effective, you have to give in to other people's egos. Mm. You have to acknowledge they need this 
And so you let them do it just because for the good of cause, right? Because Mm. that's how you can get to the end you're after. Um, And, uh, yeah, sometimes that's hard. For me, I I can't speak for anybody else. I just thought of a a great book title for you to write, Monroe. What's that? Organizations Have Egos. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, people do, but organizations have personalities. Yes, they do. And they have egos and they have stories and histories. And yeah, that's what makes them interesting. That's why I like to think about what gives them a brand. (laughs) That is their brand. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. Right. Okay. Listen, I want to get into it and it, I'd like for you to maybe just, um, just to kind of remind me and walk our listeners through this conversation that we had around systems change, because the first thing we did is, you know, you, you kind of did three things. One is you defined it. What do we, what do we mean by systems change? And then two, you, you laid out what, what do you envision? What do you aspire to? Okay. And then third, you got specific about, What's our role in this look like on the ground? Walk yeah. us through that conversation and what you came up with. Yeah, I, I think it's important to start with the board, where the board and, and strategic planning, which uh, there's this great guy named Patrick Jinks that led us through that. And uh, Patrick uh, said the board needed to set the strategic direction and and what was the direction we should take that for as an organization to get us where we felt like we ought to be. And the board said, well, um, focus on your core competencies and grow your focus on uh, systems change. Mm. So that forced us as an organization. When the board said that, well, then we have to think, okay, what does that mean? And can, I, can I pause you right there? Please that, do. That, because that was a fascinating conversation it with your was. board. Because the way I interpreted it, um, and you just reminded me of it, but the way I interpreted it was I heard your board say, because it was really you and the staff leadership that was talking about, listen, you know, habitats have to get to the system level and all of yeah. this. And I remember the board saying in so many words, we're, we're good on that, but not at the expense of some of the core functional work. Don't take your eye off the ball That's right. while you're doing this glamorous <laughs> systems right. change work. I mean, that's not what they said, but, but there was a concern that if you go into that systems change work, they, they couldn't, they had a hard time getting their head around that. Yeah. And they feared I'm, I'm interpreting this, but they, they feared reasonably so that, that well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Let's talk about what habitat for humanity is That's and right. does. Now you're not going to build houses anymore. You're just going to yeah. get it. Or that we're going to forget how to build. You're houses. just going <laughs> to do advocacy work. What the heck is that? Right. And a lot of boards struggle with that. What yes. is the systems change work? You're not, I mean, I've spent over 20 years in the United way network. We started talking about collective impact and community impact and the boards went, okay, but wait, we're still going to fund agencies, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're still going to do an annual workplace campaign, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a proper balance because the board's responsibility is to respond to community need and to make sure we're responsibly handling our portion of addressing that community mm-hmm, need. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's, it's not inappropriate for the board to have that. Let's make sure we balance this correctly. And, and you know, we just talked about brand historically, that is Habitat's brand promise. Yes. To build houses. That's right. For people, you know, I mean, we, 
habitats like many of the other sort of big box nonprofits, quite honestly, where everyone has a very uh, surfacey yeah. look. Yeah, okay, they build housing for homeless, and that's right. The Red Cross does disaster relief, and I think the United yeah. Way raises money and yeah. spreads it out all over the place. And the Salvation Army they feed people at yeah, lunch, that's right. <laughs> right? So we understand. And Goodwill they they have a thrift store. Yeah. So we understand there's a lot deeper work than that, but there's a brand perception that goes with it and i think boards i mean as committed as a board is they're volunteers they're running manufacturing right. companies and banks and law firms and and so to them that brand promises but we we have to build as many houses as we can for people that's that, right yeah. you, you can't you can't separate the community expectation from the from mm, the brand promise that's if if you do you, you go just away said it better than i did yes that's <laughs> much more succinct thank you and and, and i think that that uh, that with w w w when a board says okay management balance this correctly they're fulfilling their role mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the board did say to us pursue this do we it. see yeah, the value yeah, of do. it that's right just balance it correctly that's right that's right so that led to some some you, you dug in with it with your that, leadership that, team that's right with the, with the leadership team our senior leadership team we came up with uh uh, our our theory, if you will, okay. uh, of system change, uh, and 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 just let me read it if you don't sure, mind, yeah. Patrick. We define systems change as influencing fundamental improvement of embedded community structure. Systems change results in greater and easier access to affordable housing in all families. And so, just to go through the phrase again, so we can take time to let it sink in what it actually means. Systems change is, as you're defining it, influencing fundamental improvement of embedded community structure. That's right. Give me an example of embedded community structure that affects Habitat's mission and what you're doing. Yeah, that's a that's the right question, and 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 so let's take one that's. Um, obvious to me, <laughs> perhaps not to others. Um, and we're doing, we're going through this in Greenville right now. And, and that's, uh, around zoning. How mm. are we going to zone for housing? So, uh, that allows for perhaps multifamily that allows for the, a simple one. So in, in Greenville, um, in many places, the way uh, uh, things are zoned, uh, 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 somebody may w have a piece of property that they have a house on, but they cannot, by zoning, put a second structure on that might um, it, uh, uh, increase the number of housing or increase housing availability in the community. Right, so we're we're trying to um, change those those kind of um, um, uh, zoning structures. That's a that's a simple one, um, but the, the our all of our zoning laws right now are are under review and will be changed. And you know we need to be at the table. Um, perhaps we'll never be the leading voice, and I, we will not be the ever leading voice in that. But we need to make sure our voice is heard so that there's uh, more availability of affordable housing. Yeah, I think that it that the voice is heard and that it's listened to. In other words, that it's a legitimate voice. Yes, that's that right. at that table people go, you know, Monroe, what is habitat? Where's habitat yes. on this? You know, how you know? Tell us what you've learned and what you know in terms of what you're doing. So that's a great example. Uh, and I think a, a good, simple, practical example of a, of an embedded community structure 
or process or parameter that we have to work within or change. That, that's exactly right. So, and, and so historically what has happened because of zoning laws is, is there's been a single structure on a piece of property that was defined by zoning laws as being some amount of property, right? 5,500 square, uh, square feet or, you know, whatever. And, and it was interesting. We had a group come in into Greenville that was, uh, they were brought in by the Hollingsworth um, Foundation to help us think about uh, uh, community planning and zoning, et cetera. And um, here was their warning to Greenville. If you don't change your zoning structure, you're going to be the next Atlanta. So, you know, Atlanta is spread out over how many counties, and, and it's because of that, in large part because of their zoning laws, how much housing density is allowed uh, on a piece of property. And, and so we, to, to not become Atlanta with uh, a, a gazillion single-family uh, homes, uh, uh, we, we, we have to change those zoning laws. And okay, but don't the economic development people, when they hear you're going to be the next Atlanta... <laughs> Don't they light up and go, that's, let's do it then because Atlanta's got all these corporate offices and there's, there's business and it's booming and it's from an economic development standpoint. This is, um, you know, I've done a little bit of work with county governments and strategic sure. planning and the, there's, there's always this, this, um, tension sure. between the, the, you know, things like infrastructure services, the human side of things like housing and neighborhood quality and things and the economic developers that they just. Their job, yes. literally their job, is to bring business in. And they don't always think about the the even the unintended consequences yes. of what bringing lots of business in. Or sometimes they know what it is, and that's okay. Because they say, damn, the gotta, torpedoes full speed ahead. Got to get these right. bus- you know, got to get these in. So that's a part of embedded systems, yeah, too. It, the, the, and, and the question oftentimes in communities like, like Greenville is, what can we afford? Can we afford the infrastructure to support the, the way development mm-hmm. has happened in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question, I mean, the answer to that question is becoming more and more. No, we can't afford uh, that kind of infrastructure development. Mm-hmm. So density becomes a, 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 an issue there too. Okay. So you, you want to, you, you it, systems change is influencing fundamental improvement of embedded community structure, which as you say, will result in greater and easier access to affordable housing for families, which is, where the mission bent is. So what does that look like? If that happens, what does that look like? What does that bring? What are, what are, what are the aspirations then from Habitat's point of view for systems change? Well, simply put, simply put is um, a more affordable housing. And mm-hmm. in Greenville County, we're 20,000 units roughly short of a, in terms of the need for affordable housing, so we began to 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 put a dent in 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 that number. But for Habitat in particular, it is we also bring the value of home ownership into the affordable housing equation. So we're saying it's not enough just to provide affordable housing, but we've got to make um, home ownership 
uh, a part of that conversation so that, you know, the kind of the, 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 the way people think about it, the people who research this is that you need about at least about a 50-50 split in a community of, of home ownership versus rental to create a healthy community. And uh, and because ownership of a community uh, increases community engagement, uh, uh, responsible living, etc. So we're not just promoting the value of home ownership. I mean, uh, affordable housing as 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 real as that need is. We're saying home ownership has to be a a a good chunk of that development and. Um, if if you really want to create healthy neighborhoods, healthy communities, if you really want things like um, if you want economic mobility in a community, you've got to focus on home ownership. If you want financial equity, you know everybody's talking about equity right now. Home ownership as at the core of that issue because for so many years our embedded systems prevented African-Americans from owning homes. Now we've got to provide them with opportunities. So um, it, it's, uh, it, it impacts all those, those kind of big issues, if you will, of our day. Yeah. Because I, you know, it, it, affordable housing is, you know, that, that I can, I can afford a monthly payment to house my family in, right. in, a, in a permanent situation, you know, a, a permanent yeah. or semi-permanent situation where I'm not going from shelter to shelter. Or I'm not in some yeah. transitional two year thing, but a, a permanent house, I'm renting it, whether it's, you know, subsidized or not, or I'm owning a home, making a monthly payment that I can afford, which right. oftentimes is less than what a rental payment is. And I'm building asset. Yeah. So now I'm creating potential generational resource and wealth that, again, historically and systemically, we've not allowed all people in this country. That's right. If you, there's a there's a simple number out there, uh, Patrick, that says um, that uh, when people uh, states uh, in African, uh, excuse me, in white families is uh, the average estate that is left to children is about 105,000 something roughly $105,000 with African Americans it's more like 8,000 mm. and th- the crux of that is home ownership right because most people's wealth are tied up in their homes it's the biggest asset sure uh, it's absolutely the biggest asset so how do we break down that equity uh, the the unequal of uh, 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 wealth position of African American families versus white families, and that is around home ownership. We give uh, more equal access to home ownership uh, for families. So it's things like that 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 we are advocating for. Um, there's a there's an interesting one that's out there, and we're trying to figure out right now how to address. We're seeing people who can. Um, can pay the mortgage, you, you know, affordable mortgage, 30% of your um, income should not, uh, more than 30% of your income should not be used uh, for housing. And what we're finding is people can afford the mortgage with this exception, they can't pay the taxes. Because mm-hmm. as housing values increase in Greenville, yep. other communities, yep. certainly in South Carolina and Charleston, Columbia, 
you 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 people can't afford the the the, um, the property taxes the, the, the taxes on it yeah so what we're trying to figure out how to do is for families with low incomes is given the homestead exemption just like we say for families who are, are, are seniors who become uh, go on to fix uh, into fixed income situation they we we limit the amount of, of tax that they'll uh, on their property right why not give that to low income families so that the tax doesn't become the barrier to home ownership and and when you think about that patrick that it becomes very complicated because the counties are the ones who who are the driver in that because their income is driven by that property tax and to um, and, and so we have to get counties to agree to a, a less money from um, property tax by giving low-income families. It becomes a very complicated issue. So we've got to build a coalition, go back to our original point, around that idea uh, to get it to, 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 to move. So your team came up with three specific things that you aspired to do. This was a, during a strategic planning process. So we were looking at a three-year window rather than yes, a right. five-year window because five-year windows are kind of old school now for strategic planning. Things change too quickly. But during the strategic planning window, your team said, well, there's with regard to systems change, then there's three things we, we really aspire to do. And, yep. and you just hit on it at the big, you just gave the sort of umbrella for that, which is, yeah. you know, increase the amount of affordable housing, particularly through the lens of home ownership. But let's talk about those three specific things, because I think what I love about these is again, these are some specific practical examples that people can start to go, Oh, that's systems change. That's what it takes. That's right. So what are those? First of all, shape public perception on affordable housing as a driver of community health. And we don't just mean physical health. We mean uh, financial health, of emotional health, et cetera. But et cetera. physical health too, right? That, that's exactly right. What was the book I read a couple of years ago? Oh, um, oh, some people you know have read it too. Susie Foley at the Free Clinic. Uh, it came, I think, through the Free Clinic work. Our, oh, I think it was called Our Communities Are Making Us Sick. Yes, some, that's exactly right. Is that the name of the book? Yeah, there, there, there is a book like that. And, you know, what, what we've come to determine over the last few years, the most, um, uh, the, the, the largest determinant of your future is your zip code. And so, oh. <laughs> it, 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 and so we're, we're, what we're saying is we've got to change the, per, the public perception that affordable housing affects everything else in life. Okay. And then the second one is to make affordable housing a public funding priority with a designated funding stream. And, that's, and you're talking about local in this case. That's what we're talking about local in this case, but it doesn't have to be. I would like to think when we get that done at a local level, we begin to think about it as at a state level we're actually working right now with the state of south carolina around designating some of the federal funds that have come about uh, because of pandemic to designate some of that for um for housing but um but I, uh, it's got to be a public funding priority yeah and there's the stream on this uh just to see if i have this right is that this isn't a we're not talking about a government grant we're not talking about a foundation grant. We're talking about a consistent, dedicated stream 
That's right. Of funds so that this is sustainable and has momentum and has security. So we need to think about it like we think about um, our rebuilding our roads. The, the housing is an infrastructure issue just like roads are an infrastructure issue. Mm-hmm. And so with roads, we say we're going to have a gas tax. And the gas tax is going to pay uh, for building and, and um, refurbishing um, our roads, part of our infrastructure. We need to think about housing in the same way, that housing is a fundamental element of infrastructure. That's what we're saying here. Something I learned in working with a, a county government, and I've worked with a few, not a lot. Um, you know, I learned in one county that it's it's an estimated $50 million a year. This is a, this is kind of a, a fairly small to medium sort of rural kind of County mm-hmm. that it, that it, it's estimated that it takes about $50 million a year of County funds just to keep the roads from getting any worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like there's a rating system That's and, right. and to maintain the score that maybe we have right now, $50 million a year. So you drive around, you go, man, these roads are terrible. I wish they'd fix the roads. The reality is what we don't see is they are fixing roads. Yes. They're just not keeping up with it. And the so I'm, I'm wondering, can you see that parallel with, you know, when you, when you compare the housing to the roads and you look at the fact that it costs $50 million in, in, you know, County a just to keep things from getting worse. That's absolutely true about housing too. And that, um, especially as our our, our uh, population ages, they're in homes that they own, but they can't afford the upkeep. They can't afford maintenance. And so it ends up with a hole in the roof with rain coming through that ruins the floor that, you know, and we're losing housing stock because of that, because there's not repair work being done. Mm. There is a legitimate argument that the greatest impact you can make on affordable housing is by preserving current housing stock. So at Habitat, we and Habitat Greenville, we decided um, a few years ago to invest our resources, a lot of our resources, into preserve uh, preservation, home preservation. So we are currently doing fifty projects a year. Um, um, uh, with home preservation, our goal over the next couple of years is to get to a hundred projects. Probably what the community needs out of us is about 300 projects. And then to add another organization that's doing 300 projects, then we can begin to make an impact in the need for affordable housing by preserving adequate uh, numbers of, of, of homes in our community. I mean, if anyone's listening right now that did, that did have that old, you know, traditional brand view of what Habitat for Humanity is all about, that's right. That's been changed in the last 30 minutes, I can tell you. What's up? So that so and the third one. Okay. That's <laughs> the third one. Effect change in local policies that influence accessibility to affordable housing. And we give examples of zoning, tax structure, regulations, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. We've already talked about a bunch of that. Mm-hmm. We talked about zoning. We've talked about tax structure. Um, those are the kinds of things that we need to influence and we we need to uh, give 
we need to give public officials the data, the information they need so that they can make informed decisions when we get to zoning, tax structure, regulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that seat at the table that they listen to you when you that's say right. those things. Okay, so now I, I could make the argument at this point. Okay, Monroe, that sounds great. Shape public perception. What the heck is the work that involved in that, right? Make affordable housing a public funding priority. What the heck is Habitat going to do to make that happen or affect change in local policies? So the next level your team took then was to say, okay, so what's our work? What does it look like? Yeah. What's the, how do we define the charge? What's, what are our marching orders walking out of here? Yep. And I think, uh, that may be the best work we did actually in in this patrick and i i would i think there are four statements we made uh, one is convening and amplifying cross-sector conversations to foster and expand shared understanding of the impact of affordable housing so there are people who are doing services toward children there are people we, we separate homelessness from housing mm. and, and, and at least in public perception. Uh, we've got to bring those people in together and say this is the value of housing. Education. For instance, our families tell us, 68% of our families tell us that their children's grades improve when they go into a Habitat house. Well, that's a systems issue, right? I mean, because families are having to move from one rental place to a next rental place, there's no stability in the school. And there's research that says every time a child moves from one school to another, they fall six months behind. So how do we provide stability in their education experience? Well, that's not an argument that Habitat needs to make. That's an argument that the education system needs to make. And so when we bring those people together and we're all talking about the value of housing as it impacts health or education or, or pick your topic, uh, then that becomes something that people are going to listen to, that uh, politicians are going to listen to. Um, I want all of our listeners to hit the pause button and rewind 60 seconds and listen to all of that again. That's, that's one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time. And I'd like for you to repeat the statistic you gave me about Habitat students. 68%, tell me that again. 68% of our families report to us that their grades improve when uh, they go into a Habitat house. Uh, just another little, uh, over 60% of our families report to us that their health improves, the family's health. They don't get as much sinus infections, et cetera, et cetera. Because, uh, it, it, so it's all those issues that we see as fundamental to a health and uh, health in a community are impacted by housing. That's, that's incredible. And I wanted to, I wanted to, I didn't want that, that outcome to yes. just blow by too quickly. I wanted people to catch that because this is not only, boy, we could do a whole additional episode on measuring our impact. That's right. And and you've done some of that with what the families are reporting back to you. But now, Monroe, I'm a little concerned because I asked people to pause and rewind 60 seconds. And when they get back to that, it's gonna they're going to hear that again. And they're going to keep 
and I'm, and they're never going to get past that mark because they're going to keep rewinding 60 seconds. I'm afraid <laughs> I might have put people in an infinite loop here, but um, do it once and then come back to us and listen to the rest of this. Okay, keep going. What what so uh, so p- part second. one is to convene, like literally convene, invite people to the table to have the conversations and educate them on the impact of affordable housing. So not only we're going to convene and amplify cross-section conversations, we're going to give our affected families a platform for advocacy. We want to give the people we serve a voice Mm. and we want them to have the opportunity to speak about their needs and about the opportunities that can be available to them. And so we want to have them at city council meetings We want to have them in front of churches. We want to have them telling their story to change the narrative. I I listened to a podcast over the weekend, uh, Patrick, uh, about it was entitled The Danger of a Single Story. (laughs) And with people who are poor, often we have a single narrative about them that they cannot do this, they cannot do that. We talk about their limitations. And the challenge of this TED Talk was to start, to, to excuse me, to stop listening to one narrative and to embrace the multiple narratives which are for everybody. And uh, people who are poor, uh, given opportunities, will take advantage of those opportunities. We want poor people, people who are poor, not poor people, people who are poor to be able to speak their story and say, and change the narrative about uh, people who have low incomes. The other narrative, Monroe, and I don't know how prevailing it is, but it's loud. So loud doesn't always mean prevailing, but it's loud. But the other, I think the other narrative and story around that is that people who are poor don't want to be anything else like they like it's not only do they not have the capabilities but you know come on man up step up right like the opportunities here you're in the united states of america you know yeah, exactly. I, mean, I mean that's still out there yeah that's that mentality exactly right. is uh, that mentality exists lazy shiftless i mean right. those kinds of things are that they're there because of their laziness yeah that's that's not true. Never been true. It's an easy uh, out is what it is. Yeah, but but it, it plays well. Yeah, that's right. Okay, keep going. Third this one, is great. Uh, creating, doc, uh, creating documented policy positions that arm policymakers with information and understanding that lead to good decisions. We talked about this just a mm-hmm. minute ago a little bit, but it, documented is, is is the important word. That's the action item. Yeah, you, 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 you can't tell them, tell them just this is what we want. But this is why we want it, because this is good for our community. And uh, you, you, you got to be able uh, got to be able to do that. My experience with people who are in elected uh, positions is they want that. They want they, they can't know everything. They depend on us to help educate them, to give them a, a way to make an informed decision at a policy level. And, and we can do that. Uh, takes a little more work, uh, perhaps uh, spend a little money on uh, uh, developing some documentation, uh, doing some research, etc. cetera, uh, but uh, we can provide them with that. I would never be a politician. I would never want to, and I would be a terrible yeah politician. Um, but if I were, 
I would want that handful of go-to entities that I knew were my sources for the data that makes me smart when I sit in a committee meeting and I'm, and I'm going to vote one way or the other, or I'm going to advocate for a particular position and I'm standing there and I have data. Yeah. I have real data that, that subject matter experts who are in the field, who do this work have armed me with. I, I remember when we used to go, you know, they, they have Hill Day, right? Where you go, the, the organizations go and you, you visit with your legislators, your yep. senators and such. And I, I remember, I, I think just about every politician that we met with over the years would say something similar to, I really appreciate that. You know, yes. in, in South Carolina, United Way developed the, the in conjunction with some, some university partners, the self-sufficiency standard yeah. manual. And we took that to cap to, to, to Columbia downtown yeah. to the legislature and they went nuts over that. Sure. I mean, there's this whole like plenty of data county by county around what it takes to actually be self-sufficient and what all those different pieces yeah. are and what the, and they loved it and they thanked us for it. That's right. I've even had conversations with, um, with elected officials about, um, uh, government um, uh, uh, departments that, in fact, housing mm. that they didn't even know oh, that the yeah. existed, and and you can say, well, they should. Well, of course, in a perfect world, they would, but they they have a lot to say grace over, mm-hmm. and when we've got to help them, and and I, I had I, I, I remember sitting with 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 elected officials and them saying, now. Tell me, what does this organiz- this department do? How are their uh, how is their leadership uh, uh, selected? You know, they were asking me those fundamental questions. Who do they answer to? They answer to the to to the House, to the Senate. Do they answer to the governor? They didn't know. Mm-hmm. We were educating them. We were helping them, but that helped our cause yep. a, 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 as we were as we were moving forward they, they're, they're good people but sometimes they're not informed people and it's our job and 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 if you think people who choose profit over people are not giving them information you're, you're being really naive mm. they're getting information from the people who say this is the importance of, in terms of, of profits um, and we need to to be sharing the message. This is the value toward people. I'm going to, I'm, we're going to get to the the fourth one here and then we're going to move on to values quickly, but let me ask you this. Um, and this isn't stated in here, but creating documented policy positions that you can disseminate to various policymakers is obviously great. It's a, it's a practical, it's actionable, it's tangible, it's meaningful. Doesn't relationship, come into this in a big, big way. I've seen, um, I've seen organizations lament the fact yeah. that they hadn't been working on relationships with policymakers. And then when the time was needed where their voice needed to be heard, it wasn't there. Yeah. Um, so in how, how does Habitat do that when you, you know, you have the policy positions, but how do you, how do you open the door to hand that to them and to talk to them and to get them to where, when they have a question about it, they tell their assistants, call Monroe free at Habitat Greenville. Yeah. And, and you do it by showing up. I mean, you do it by showing up It, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know with, about you, uh, Patrick, but when I was, 
um, courting. Is that a? That's an. I know that's an archaic word. But when you were I when I was courting my wife, you know, uh, I, I I sent flowers. I made. Uh, I, I I don't remember writing a poem, but I may have. I did things, you know, that are pers- that, that were quote unquote romantic. I showed up. I did the things that that you're supposed to do to build the strength in that relationship before I ever ask her to marry me. And I, I think with politicians, they're just people. You show up. You, 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 you're their friend. You, you listen to them as well as speak to them. You, you really take their needs seriously. You know, you build a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as trust develops, then they pick up the phone um, and, and call you and, or even if they don't pick up the phone and call you, when you pick up the phone and call them, they answer and, and they, they listen to your opinion, but it, it starts way before, uh, there's an actual policy issue. That's right. Uh, that's a great way of putting it is when you call the answer, Ron Harvey was on the show a couple of weeks ago and, you know, he made the statement and you've heard it probably before, but he, he said it very powerfully. He said, nothing, nothing at all in this world happens without a connection. That's exactly right. There's, it has to be a connection somewhere. Yeah, and, I never and, thought of um, it quite like that, but that's exactly, that's exactly right, right. And big things don't happen without trust. Mm. And you, you, you build trust, you build trust over time by being trustworthy, um, uh, being a, trustworthy over time. There's another episode. <laughs> Keep going. So the fourth one is increase our presence at local and regional tables where we can both learn and share our own issues affecting affordable housing. So once again, that's what I was saying. You, you just, you got to show up and, you know, as executive director, I can't show up everywhere that, that I need to show up. There's a legislative day tomorrow here in Columbia. I can't be at, but one of our key leadership people is, is there. We, you know, it has to be shared throughout the organization. We're doing some advocacy training for anybody in our organization right now that wants to be a part of that. We have some board members showing up. We have some staff people showing up who are really interested in that. And we'll involve everybody uh, that we can in, in that advocacy issue because we have to show up at a lot of tables. The Chamber of Commerce are, are uh, tomorrow with a, a legislative day. Uh, in Columbia or just knowing our uh, elected officials in the county and city, um, there's a lot of tables we need to have a presence at and be speaking the the Habitat message. So you really touched on a really important tenet of leadership here because you're right, you're not omnipresent. So what you've done, though, is intentionally built and developed and elevated your senior team to a true C-suite sort of an operation. And what that's done is that has multiplied the organization's brand ambassadorship. That's right. That it doesn't just exist in one person. And the relationship that you want people to have is with Habitat, not with Monroe. Because when Monroe retires, then where's the relationship reside? I I remember, you know, going to an organization that, you know, I I followed a 30-year you know, icon in the community. And one of the first things I asked the board there, they, they told me how many major donors that they had. Mm-hmm. And during my interview, I asked them how many of those people are giving to the CEO and how many of them are giving to the organization. 
Yes. Because I'm coming from the, I'm coming from the outside and I, you know, you're going to lose some of your donors right off the bat because it's an easy out for them because I'm not the one that they, they had any onus to. So you've expanded your, your presence. The other thing I like about this is this goes to an individual component of leadership that I coach on a lot. And that is the difference between attendance and presence and the difference between accessibility and presence. So in an executive framework, I hear people say a lot, I have an open door policy. I want my people to, to know that they can access me at any point in time. They can come to me anytime, which is great. But why do they have to come to you? Yeah, that's a good where, point. Where is your proactivity to go to them before they ask? You know, yeah. how, how present, proactively present are you? And that's what you're talking about here is you can't just sit around as an organization and say, why won't the legislators ever call Habitat and ask us to the table? You can't do that. Yeah, but there's a corollary to that, Patrick. And what I tell our people is I work for you. I'm a tool in your toolbox. If you get into a relationship, it may be with an elected official. It may be with a donor. It could be with anybody that you need me because of my position. Not because of me. I'm not that good looking. If you need me, call me and I will show up to help you in that relationship. Mm-hmm. So it can't, it can't be, I can't be everywhere. I can't do everything, but I need to be available to people when my position, not my person, my position yeah. helps move uh, the ball forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, this reminds me of something Ron and I talked about again, a couple of weeks ago on the show is he said, I tell my people call on me when you feel like I'm the one needed at that. Like, I don't want to be the person needed at everything. Right. <laughs> but if I'm the best person, I'm yeah. not always the best person. And he, and he said, there are times when I'll ask you know, am yes. I the best person for this? And they'll say, mm, probably not. That's exactly <laughs> Pro- right. We probably need so-and-so to go. And so you, you've got to be open to that. But I just love that, that it's proactive, increase our presence at local table. And I like that you chose the word presence rather than attendance. Yeah. Um, so then Monroe, you, you, your team got into, um, what are your values? And yeah, we won't take too long on this, but we're coming up on an hour now and we've got time, but boy values, (laughs) you know, you got to have some value statements with bullets on your strategic plan and on your website, you you know, you got to have them. Right. And so what do you put on there? Well, you know, you put on integrity, honesty, customers first, uh, um, um, diversity, uh, uh, inclusive, you know, all the, all the givens catchwords and they're givens. They're like, well, yeah, those are table stakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, we're honest. Really? Wow. That's admirable. I'm I'm, I'm buying into that. Right. But the values, and I think that, you know, values and culture are super closely tied together. And, you know, we've been talking a a lot recently on several episodes about how culture is the way we do things around here. Mm-hmm. That's how it's defined by, by some. And I love that definition. My favorite yeah. ones, culture is how we, the way we do things around here. Values are tied to that because values are what drive that behavior. Yeah. Those are certain things that we value. Your team got together and started talking about, um, 
you know, what is it that we're always thinking about? What's the lens that we tend to look through? And, and I think there was some acknowledgement that while you can't force, you know, values just by stating them, you can and should aspire to behaving certain ways. And I, what I loved about what your team put together, and I want to go through your list, and then I want to share one more list from another organization that, that I think is similar. And then we'll wrap this up. But talk to us about what you all came up with in terms of what you're striving for, embracing, yeah. and behaving at Habitat Greenville. Well, I, you know, P- Patrick, you, you've heard me say I, I have a bias here. You, you, you don't articulate values. You discover values. They are what they are, and uh, uncovering those um, helps you um, in a variety of ways. And and so when 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 we were doing this, and 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 instead of saying, "Look, here's what we want to be," I said, "Let's figure out really who we are. What is what are the drivers in the organization? What's underneath what we do?" And and so we 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 came up with um, things that, uh, in fact, I read them again this morning, just thinking about uh, being here uh, with you. And I went, "Boy, you know, I like that. That's not only do I hope that's who we are." I I think that is pretty close to who we are most of the time. And so the other thing I liked about what we said was it's it's common vernacular. It 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 right. It's not very lofty sounding. Um it's just as if you and I were were talking. Yeah, and it's not platitudes. It's not, you know, it's not it's not the tr- you know the 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 stereotypical kind of words that you throw out there. It's like it, what's the everyday language? What's it look like? There's not much more wordsmithing to this. You want me to read them? Yeah. All right. The first one is everyone has a right to be heard. Mm. Second one, getting better is always best. Third one, mission, mission, mission. Fourth one, Collaboration means geometric improvement. Pause. <laughs> That's what does that mean? That going back to the systems conversation, the only way we can really have the kind of significant impact with our mission is when we do it with other people, when we do it with other organizations, when right. we're involved with others. Habitat by itself cannot impact affordable housing the way it needs to be impacted. But if we collaborate with Homes of Hope and if we collaborate with a housing fund and if we talk with the city and we're working with the county and then all of us together in a collaborative fashion, we can address this issue. I get collaboration. What's geometric improvement? Well, Habitat, you know, Habitat Greenville, we can build... 20 houses a year, we can repair 50 houses a year. But what if we're in collaboration with all these other organizations and we not only do we in, we, we in, in, in increase their ability to serve, they increase our ability to serve. And then we're talking about 400, 500 scale. repair jobs. Okay. We're talking about getting it to the scale that the okay. community needs. Good, good. That's helpful. Okay. Uh, the next one is we say what we do and we do what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, that one actually a, a donor 
told us that about that's what he loved most about habitat and we isn't really, that great when your value statements come from your donors who yeah, are telling you what your values are that's awesome yeah i know so and then the the next one is right wins over expediency mm. that's that's the hardest one to follow sometimes actually mm-hmm. uh uh, when when it's more money or doing what's right by a family, it's it's better to do what's right by a family. You know, uh, also right. I don't know. Let me. I'm on a. I'm on a pause on this one in my own head, Monroe. Right wins over expediency. Uh, makes total sense. Best wins over expediency too, because yeah. you can have multiple rights. I mean, there's more than one right answer right. to a lot of problems. Right. There's fast right answers. Yes. And then there's deeper, better. Yes. Right. More, better, that's faster. That's a good point, Patrick. Uh, I don't know. I'm just, that's just how that hit me for a moment. Right. Right. Sounds very absolute in that case. And it might, and that might be what it means that, that, you know, in, in those cases, absolute right definitely wins over expediency, but it's a balancing act. I think speed and depth yeah. is a real balancing act. I've always lamented of how excruciatingly slow the social sector gets things done. Yeah. yeah. But, but I've also heard, you know, what was it? Was Adela Mendoza. I know you know her. Yeah. She'll be, I, I got to get her on the program, but you know, she, she's the one who I, from whom I first heard, if you want to go fast, go alone. Yeah. And if you want to go far, go together. Yeah, that's and and that's exactly right. I, I, I will tell you that the hard part of this one. I want to do both, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to go. I want to go fast and far. Can I do that? Yeah, you, yeah. You want to run a sprint for the whole marathon. Right. I think that the tough one on this is is just exactly what you said. It's it's figuring out what. The, the, the short term versus the long term mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and finding what it, it may be in the short term is best. It does not serve the long term good. And discerning that is, mm. is, is the challenge. We, one of our texts at the university of Richmond uh, in our class on ethics was a book by Rushworth Kidder called how good people make tough choices. Yeah. And, uh, I, it's one of the, one of the most impactful books I've ever read. I, it's one of like probably the top three that I recommend to people, but he talks about the difference between a moral temptation and an ethical dilemma. (laughs) And he says a moral temptation is a clear choice between right and wrong. When the temptation is, you know, it's wrong but it's still tempting because there's some benefit or pleasure from it. That's right. It's a clear choice between right and wrong. We often confuse that with an ethical dilemma. We think an ethical dilemma is like a moral temptation, but he said an ethical dilemma, the reason it is a dilemma and not a temptation is because in many cases in ethics, both decisions are right. Yeah. You know, I had a new Testament professor who used to say, Anybody can make a choice between right and wrong. Uh. The difficult decisions are the difference between right and better and mm. better and best. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, Kidder talks, for example, about justice or mercy. Yes. Those are in conflict with each other. Which one's right? Yes. You know, long-term or short-term? 
That's right. Yeah. One's not better than the other. They're, they have different, different, you know, uh, what was it? There's a, there's a couple of others, community or individual. Yes. And, uh, oh, I always, what's the fourth one? I can't remember what the fourth one is, but, but the idea that there are, um, there are multiple right answers and that's that right. this ethical dilemma is about what's, the, what's the, what's and, the best and, right. And, and if time. you've ever raised children, you face that regularly, right? Yeah. What's, what's in the short term interest of the child versus what's in the long term interest of the child. And those are really, that's good. Those are hard. I love it. Okay. A right. couple more. Fun and accountability are not mutually exclusive. And, and gosh, that is one we really, really do believe in at Habitat. Mm-hmm. We, we, take, we take our work way too seriously not to have some fun with it. And, and I listened to a TED Talk this week. It, 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 I, I listen to TED Talks while I'm on my elliptical. That gets me through my exercise. And, and uh, that a TED Talk was about the value of humor and leadership. Mm. But they, they, make, they make that point that really the, the idea of fun, of laughing, of, of, of making fun of oneself, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as, a, as, a, as valuable to an organization. And, and, and I, I really laughing about the mistakes you make, uh, laughing about your mixed motivations sometimes, all those kinds are really important to an organization. Fun mm. and accountability yeah. are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, just having a good time while you're doing what you're exactly. doing. I mean, you know, um, and I'll tell you why this one, I, I liked it then and I like it even more now because since we, since I recall this work being put together, I've come to really give a lot of thought to the term accountability. Yeah. So this uh, last week, my um, my YouTube episode focused on this. Accountability is a compound word. Yes, it is. It's two words. Yeah. Account, and this is the one we this is the one we miss. Ability. Yes. Accounting for your commitments is an ability. Yes. It's a skill. It's a competency. So I've come to just go, oh my gosh, we've been talking about holding people accountable. You know, like this, this yeah. punitive, consequential, yeah. we, I'm holding you accountable. We ought to hold our leaders accountable. No. How about help your team develop their ability to yeah. account? Yes. I, and so when, I, when I've started to frame that word out, that this works even better. This fun and accountability. Yes. Yeah. It's fun to account for your work. It's fun to know how it's fun to be able to, you know, I made a commitment. I followed through with it. People benefited from it. It added value. I got better. They got better. We all got better and we had fun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We need more of that in the social sector. I love it. Uh, My favorite book title of all time is confessions of a Christian hedonist. <laughs> so we could change that a little bit. Confessions of a nonprofit hedonist. We, there is something that, that, that is really beneficial to having fun at what we do. Mm. It is. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. And then the last one is one habitat, uh, which, we, which we're all one. We have different roles to play, um, but there's one. That's, that's, that's who we are. Nobody is, has a greater or more important role to play than the other. We just, we're one Mm. takes us all, every one of us. That's right. Yeah. 
And Habitat is an international organization. So this this oneness is global. Yes, it is. It's regional. It's definitely local. Yeah, absolutely. This sense of unity, and we're all pursuing the same. That's right. Mission. Yeah. What yeah, is it? How would exactly you? Right. What What's the mission of Habitat? How, and and so I tell people all the time that your mission is your charge. So you know, people would say, "Well, I know Habitat's mission is build housing for build houses for homeless people." Yeah. What's really at the essence of your charge at Habitat? Well, I think if you look at the mission statement, it says that we build communities, um, uh, we build uh, homes, uh, communities, and hope. Mm. That's that's what we do. You know, um, I, I say this, Patrick, in terms of what we do, what we really are about is um, helping families overcome uh, the impact of poverty in their life. And that the way that we believe is the most effective way to do that is by putting an asset in their hand through home ownership. And um, yeah, I tell our board, if we ever find a more effective way than affordable home ownership, we ought to do it. If we ever find a way to lift people above the consequences of poverty, we ought to find, we ought to do that. We ought to quit do, building houses and mm. start doing that, because that's what it's really about. And and, and that has to do with building uh, uh, homes. It does. It has communities. You know, healthy neighborhoods make healthy uh, families. Uh, it has to do with hope. That that sense of that 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 what I do makes a difference, what I do about myself, the decisions I make, all that is tied into that. But um, uh, what I I really believe is we take away the the effects of of poverty uh, on families. Uh, That's that's what I believe. That's what I believe we do. I've been a part of a lot of community conversations, Monroe, over the last two and a half decades about what the root of everything is, right? And people say, well, it's poverty. We got to address poverty. And some people say, you know, it's, it's early education. We got to start kids. It's early yeah. childhood development. That's what drives everything. You know, the Von Grisham would go around all these neighborhood revitalization yeah. things and say, early childhood development yeah. is the number one driver of the economy in the next 20 years. Or some would say, no, it's all about health. If we're not healthy, what good is any of this stuff? And others would say, no, it's about food and food security. If you're not eating, you die in three days. Others would say, no, it's it's having a home. It's having... And so my, my theory has always been, you know, it's kind of a cycle, it's, right? Yeah. And so my deal is jump in on the cycle where yeah. you can where you can add value. But I will say this, that I say all that to say, I can't imagine doing, you know, being able to focus on my kids' development, my my health habits and and food and and my yeah. my employment and all that, if I don't have something as basic as yeah. a place I can call home, yeah. <laughs> like that is uh, that you know how do you how do you do any of that without having that you know I have a home you have a home base right that's your yeah it's that's yours right. it's your stability it's your sec- there's nothing more more that says security more than a home. Yeah, and I tell you, Patrick, kind of how I see it, I think there there are some uh, some foundational elements. I think housing is a health a foundational element. I think health is a. I think education is. There's some foundational right, right. elements that we we have to invest in. 
but I, I, it's that is not to imply that the other issues don't drive economic mobility, that don't drive economic health for families. All of these things are important. So if you ask me, um, you know, what are the drivers? Or I hear an organization say, we are one of the drivers. I say, yes, you are. <laughs> We all are. The truth is none of us by ourselves right. are adequate to meet the needs that will really transform uh, families. It takes all of us. Yeah. And and as much as I'd love to tell you that Habitat is the answer to poverty, it is not. Yeah. But it's yeah. a foundational element. Well, and we've also had the conversation, uh, Monroe, many times about the fact that we're, we're all part of an ecosystem. Yes, and, we are. And, you know, there's there's a... There's a niche role that charities play, yeah. you know, quote yeah. charities. And, and, you know, look, someone's hungry, you give them a meal, right? Someone, someone's on the street, you, you put them in a shelter, you know, and, and there's a place for charity. Yeah. But when we understand that we're all part of an ecosystem that's got to create that synergy to change right. the game in the system, um, that, that's when it happens. And, and Patrick, and, and this goes back to the systems question. Mm-hmm. It also includes businesses and corporations. Oh, yeah. Everybody's they, a part of the... They yeah. create an economic environment mm-hmm. uh, that people can flourish or not flourish in. Yeah. And we're all part of the ecos, the largest e- ecosystem. It includes us all. And, and, and we need everybody, and we need everybody to participate. It's not just us nonprofits. Though we play a critical role, yep. it's it's uh, it's it's everybody. It's all of it. I love it. I, I want to share with you, Monroe. I don't know that I've ever shared this with you, and then, um, but uh, but as we wrap the show here, there's an organization that I did some work with a number of years ago. It's the National Association for Family Child Care, and it's for these for for home based family child care centers. And um, the national team in Salt Lake City did a very similar to what your team did yeah. at Habitat and coming together and talking about this. So what, what really is important to us? Like without yeah. using all of the, the buzzwords. And so here's what they came up with. And I thought I would share this just to give our listeners uh, another example that I think is really similar to this list you came up with. Uh, that's six values. Number one, first and foremost, our primary focus is on providers. And I think this is just a good distinction for them because, yeah. you know, a lot of people say it's our donors. A lot of people say it's our employees. A lot of people say it's our, you know, whatever. Yeah. They were very clear that the providers, these business owners yeah. in the home that are providing the child care, that's the focus of this organization. Second, we work as a team, each role in concert with the whole mm. in pursuit of our vision. Mm. So the recognition that each role is unique but we're working in concert. We provide equal opportunity for any who wish to advance the mission with us. Mm. I like that statement because it's not just we're an equal opportunity employer. It is literally any way that anyone, a volunteer, a donor, a government policy, if you want to help us advance our work, there's a role for you. Yep. Fourth, we consistently ask why. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. They stated it. They called it out. They documented That's rich it. right there. We, 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 we consistently ask why. This one, sort of similar to your uh, right wins over expedient, a little bit different. We determine what is right, then how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. How many times have you been in strategic planning sessions on some board 
where we first, we jump right into how we're doing what we're doing. Wait, 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 wait. What are we even doing? Yes. Like, do we even know why we're doing it and, and what, the, where yes. the right thing is? We just jump into the how. And then the final one is our decisions and our message are founded in credible data, <laughs> not emotional response. Yes. That's good. Now, the caution to that one, selfish, you know, personally, is emotional response is powerful and there's a role for it. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that hits me about those is they balance each other out. Absolutely. You got to have them both. But but the, 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 yeah. the decisions and messages are founded in credible data. I mean, that's what gets you at the table, too. That and the relationships. That's right. So I thought I'd share that just to, you know, a That's little bit, good. I like a little that. bit of different take on values. You don't see many of those kinds of value statements in organizations. Yeah. I don't know. Most of them are the, the pretty stereotypical. What, what ones is expected that, for us to say? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I get it. I'm not, we're not, I'm not trying to slam anybody, but it's just, we've, that's the, that's the culture we've created in the sector is that, you know, that we have these templates, oh, these yeah. fill in the blank templates that we're supposed to fill out. Maybe it's okay to have value statements that we don't market. Mm. <laughs> just, just a thought. Well, no, I mean, I don't think they market this. <laughs> they could. Yes. They but could. not everyone you can. I don't think these value statements that you just gave to me are on your website. Yeah, but, but the thing of it is, is if you're, if you're living by them, the people will see, I mean, one of those statements on yours came from a don't came from someone telling you what your values was. So, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to market your values, right? You shouldn't. (laughs) Another episode. (laughs) Um, Monroe, this is always, always super rich. I love it. I appreciate it. It, um, it makes my day, Richard. Thanks for coming back on. I need to have, I need to have you on more often. I really do. I appreciate that. I think you're one of these people. Um, I think you're one of these people that we can just, we can have an impromptu conversation at any point in time and just, (laughs) Not only can we, we do pretty regularly. I always get some great nugget out of it. Um, Thanks again. I really appreciate it. It was worth getting a haircut over. (laughs) And I I appreciate the work that you and your team are doing at Habitat. All right, folks, that's going to be it for now. We'll see you here next time. Lead on.